If you would turn in your Bibles, the text upon which our teaching is based this morning comes from the letter to the Ephesians. We will be looking, we're getting close to the end of the letter. We're kind of at this climactic passage, a fitting conclusion where everything Paul has been speaking of is kind of moving towards the climax of this particular letter, bringing everything to a conclusion. Let's look at verses 10 to 20 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Why is life so hard? Did you pay attention to the passage that we just read? It's kind of like last week when I said, children, obey your parents. I could have just said, amen. There we go. That's it. Why is life so hard? Oh, spiritual forces of evil, cosmic powers, principalities, authorities, the schemes of the devil, Theologians for years, for centuries, have historically said that Christians in the Christian life face three enemies. They face the enemy of the flesh, their own flesh. Read Romans 7 sometime and you get an idea of what your flesh is like. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this, says things like, that which I want to do, like I want to diet, I eat wings. I don't do. That which I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And he's talking about when he says there is no good thing that dwells in me. He says that is in my flesh. Then you have the world. What is the world? Pretty simple, seven billion fleshes. (laughs) It's corporate flesh and the patterns of that. And then you have the final enemy that theologians speak about, and that is the devil. Now, we have to be very careful when we broach this topic, and I happen to think the best writer on this is C.S. Lewis. If you haven't ever read his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, that is one that I would recommend for you to read in terms of a proper and balanced and realistic approach to the topic of spiritual warfare. Screwtape Letters, for those of you who don't know, is a work that is made up of a series of letters from a senior devil. Uncle Screwtape, written to his younger nephew, Wormwood, about all of the schemes, the wiles, 
of the, de of the devil. And he basically calls God his enemy in that. And just to read one quote from the book, he writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to dis disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He says they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, the devil himself doesn't care if you go, ah, the world is just purely natural. The devil doesn't exist. He doesn't care if you fall into that error, nor does he mind if you fall into the error that says, I'm going to find him under every rock. I couldn't find a parking place. That's a satanic attack. C.S. Lewis is so balanced in saying they are equally pleased by both errors and hail either a what he calls a materialist or a magician with the same delight. This passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, which forms the climax of Paul's letter, bringing everything to a fitting conclusion, Paul allows us to, to fall into neither error. He allows us to do neither. What Paul is doing, and remember he's writing in the first century, so his readers, they don't have the whole New Testament yet, so he's using imagery from the Old Testament primarily from the prophet Isaiah. I don't know if you were paying attention as Bill read out of Isaiah 11. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Paul is utilizing imagery from the prophet Isaiah depicting the Lord. The stump from the shoot of Jesse. The Lord of hosts is going to be a divine warrior dressed for battle. And whose battle is he fighting? He's fighting your battle. And he's fighting my battle. And he's fighting on behalf of the people of God so that you don't go into warfare against the devil on your own. You are never fighting any battle in your life by yourself in your own power. The Lord of hosts, what a promise that is, goes before you and is your rear guard. Throughout the second half of this entire letter, Paul is exhorting and his readers to be renewed in your, in your identity, being united with Christ. And to live out of that identity, living as the new humanity in God and in Christ. You're rooted in Christ, and he said, walk in that. So many times throughout the second half of this letter, he has been exhorting us to walk or live according to the high calling and the reality of the gospel. I'll just read a couple of the examples. He told us in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner fitting, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 17, says, No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Chapter 5, verse 2, he told us to walk in love as an imitator, as God's dearly beloved, not just loved, but beloved. His, the children he delights in, he takes pleasure in, he rejoices over. In chapter 5, verse 8, he told us to walk as children of light, not as children of darkness. You're a child of light, no wonder the devil opposes you and hates you. You don't no longer belong to his realm, his territory, his kingdom. You are a child of the light. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as you wise, as what? Now let's recognize here that Paul is not breaking new ground. That as we come to the climax of the letter as a whole, he is recapitulating and reemphasizing themes that he has utilized all along. So for example, when he tells us in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, he's recalling what he said back in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1 when Paul prayed for the church? 
says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that the eyes of your heart would have a vision, a faith sight, a faith vision to know the inheritance, the glory that you've been called. And then he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and what is the, listen to the, this phrase, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when Paul tells you, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, he's calling you to remember God's power that he prayed early on. He's praying for you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. He says that power that is the power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead, trampling over death by death for you and exalted him, ascended him, and seated him at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this section in some detail. This morning, just introducing it, looking primarily at verses 10 to 13 where Paul is initially calling us to action. It is a call to action. He's exhort- When he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that is a call to action. Then he's going to, in verses 14 to 17, we'll look at that next week, kind of detail the armor that we put on. And then finally, in verses 18 to 20, he calls us to prayer. And it's real interesting here, Basically, no prayer, no power. You want to know how to call all these things to remembrance, to put on the armor of God? It's not enough to just do a detailed Bible study on the armor of God. You may do a detail. Oh, look at this. Belt of truth. That's interesting. I wonder if it's leather. Let's do a detailed Bible study on it. Can I challenge you? I hope gently, but still challenge you. Knowing the armor is not the same thing as appropriating the armor. And the only way you appropriate the armor is through prayer. Yes, you have to pray according to truth. But no prayer, no power. So I want to challenge you. How does it go with your prayer life? And I want to challenge you to this application. What are you going to do about your prayer life? What changes are you going to make as a result of This text, in your prayer life. Why is life so hard? Or how do we live out being the new humanity? There are two key truths. We're just introducing it this morning. There are two things you need to know in terms of this. One is to recognize the reality, and two is to remember the resources. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Kind of We're going to look at verses 10 to 13. Let's focus on the middle two verses, verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Notice how I want you to notice how many times he tells us to stand, to withstand, to stand firm. Remember I said this is a call to action. To stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The first part of the call to action is to recognize you're in a battle. Your life is in a spiritual battle. Why do we need the whole armor of God? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not human enemies. 
Okay, your enemies, let me give you a political, I don't like to be political, but let me just use this as an illustration. If you're Republican, your enemy is not the Democrats. If you're Democrat, your enemy is not the Republicans. If you're Calvinist, your enemy is not the Arminians. If you're Arminian, your enemy is not the Calvinists. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against, and there's no hierarchy here, but he's looking at the principalities, the rulers, the powers, the spiritual forces of evil who are all in line, all facing, all same aim, same goal, same objective, same methods as the prince of darkness, the devil. See, why does Paul command us to first put on, and I want you to notice something. In verse 10, he says, put on the armor of God. Then in verse 13, he says, take up the armor of God. Reminds me of the old saying. Those are two different verbs in the Greek, by the way. Reminds me of the old saying that says, you can dress them up, but you can't take them out. It's not enough to be dressed in the armor of God. You've got to put it to use. You've got to take it up. And you've got to take it up individually, and you've got to take it up as a church. Every one of these commands and imperatives are written in the plural. Second person plural. You, church, put on the armor of God and take up the armor of God. Now, why is it necessary? Let's look at the reality. The purpose of the armor is so that we can stand individually and together against the devil's schemes. Let's put this in context. What are the devil's schemes? What is the agenda of the devil? See, our battle is not against human enemies. It's important for us here to think theologically. And Paul's already spoken about this in the context of his letter. Let's go back to chapter 4 and verse 27, where he told the Ephesians, do not give the devil a foothold. Give no opportunity. In other words, do not allow the devil to exert an influence over you. Now, how does the devil, very practically speaking, exert an influence and gain a foothold in our life? And the answer, in context, is challenging and revealing. We always think it's completely from the outside. You know what he's doing? He's working within our flesh, and he's working within our character. Because in chapter 4... He says, we give the devil an opportunity to exert an influence over us over things like uncontrolled anger. That's chapter 4, verse 26. Dishonesty and falsehood, a lack of integrity. That's verse 25. Stealing. Stealing from the glory of God. Stealing from one another. Verse 28. And chapter 4, verse 29, any corrupting or unwholesome talk, we're allowing the devil to exert an influence when our conversation, when our words, rather than build up, tear down, when we gossip, when we're malicious, when we draw attention to ourselves, when we center on ourselves, when we say, look at me, when instead he says, let no corrupting or unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only... What is useful for building one another up gives grace to those who listen and fits the occasion, matches the need. In other words, the devil is seeking to use our very normal, everyday lives. When husbands speak to wives, parents speak to children, we speak to one another. He's wanting to use your ordinary, everyday life and our lack of attention to our own practical holiness to gain a foothold in order to defeat God and God's purposes. 
Let me read out of a couple of commentators here in terms of this. See, the devil is seeking to get anything. Do you recognize the reality of the warfare in your life? He's trying to use anything that is characteristic of the old way of life to exert influence. One commentator, Peter O'Brien, says the evil one is committed. This is the aim of his warfare, to hindering the progress of the gospel and the fulfillment of the divine plan of summing up all things in Christ. He will attempt by his insidious wiles to turn believers aside from pursuing the cause of Christ and achieving this goal. Another commentator, his name is Klein Snodgrass, writes, Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is baited and camouflaged trap. And again, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of really being all at home on earth. He says, this is just what we want, Screwtape says to Wormwood. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. Are you aware on a day-to-day basis of the reality of the battle that you are engaged in by the very fact that you name the name of Christ, by the very fact that you say, I am God's child, by the very fact that you say, I belong to him and he belongs to me, that puts you in the middle of a battle. Recognize the reality. But now, don't fear the reality. Don't live in fear of the reality. Because look at the resources that you have. Look now at verse 10 and verse 13. And I want to just go over two resources that we have. Verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The first resource that you have, which is why you do not have to be afraid. You have to recognize the reality of the warfare, but don't fear it is power. And do you recognize the power that you have? Be strong in the Lord. Recognize a couple of things here and call these couple of things to mind. First of all, our strengthening comes from outside ourselves. This is very practical. You have to recognize every day, don't look within yourself. Your strength does not at any moment ever come from within. Your strength always is external to yourself. The Lord Jesus, which means on a practical level. And that's why I said, unless you appropriate this prayer, no prayer, no power. But one of the things you have to learn to appropriate is your own weakness. To, in a sense, celebrate and embrace your own weakness. You don't have the ability in yourself. And as you recognize that, you then recognize that your power is in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. And do you know what kind of power this is? This is the power, first of all, of creation and new creation. Again, put yourself in the mind of the original readers here. 
This is swimming in the promises of the Old Testament. I think they'd be hearkening back to a time, for example, when Moses was commissioning Joshua to take over leadership of leading the people into the promised land. And the Lord promises to Joshua, what does he say? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Then he says, this is Joshua chapter 1, only be strong and very courageous. In the prophet Zechariah, we read, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. And then we read, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The strength of his might was revealed first in God's creation. Chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might. I want you to notice the similarity of of this language. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Isaiah says, look at the stars. God calls them all by name. He created all these. How did he create them? In the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You may have no power in yourself, but look at the power that is available to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that power is moment by moment available to you? In practical life, as you converse, you have the power to build up others, the power to love others, the power by your life to live the attractive holiness and glory of God. You have the power to live a very beautiful, noble life. And then, you've got the power of new creation. We read earlier, we talked about the power of God. See, the second resource is power, and the second resource is then a person. See, again, I'm going to read out of Ephesians chapter 1 what he said. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might... That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, the second resource that we have is a person. And this person is alive. Do you recognize that the power that we have is now resurrection power? He says the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that power is is immeasurable toward us where is God working that power now he's working it towards you he's putting it in effect towards you towards the battles you face towards the battles as you align yourself with his purposes as you identify yourself with his ways he's working resurrection power in your life which is why when he says put on the whole armor of God And I know it's next week before we look at exactly what that armor is. That when he puts on that whole armor, it's another way of saying put on Christ. See, back in chapter 4, verse 24, Paul told the Ephesians to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And commentators remind us that now by detailing the armor to be worn, Paul is developing the idea of putting on the new. Essentially then, putting on the new self is the same as donning the armor of God. When you put on the armor of God, it's a, it's a way of saying be clothed with Christ. Be clothed with his truth, with his faith, with his righteousness, with his word, with the rod of his mouth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The armor is the armor which God supplies, which is basically Christ himself. It's the same thing as putting on Christ. Why do you not have to, yes, recognize the reality of the battle, but why not fear the battle? Because your resource is the person of Jesus and his power that is at work towards you. Putting on Christ is the same thing as putting on the armor of God. Identifying with God and his purposes. Friends, are you appropriating the resources God has given you? I can't help but look at this passage. To me, again, this is a call to action. How zealously are we pursuing and following hard after Jesus? If you're not, I've just got to repeat C.S. Lewis again, is the world becoming at home in your heart that you're not feeling maybe the depths or the intensity of the battle? That's one of the dangers of living in a land like ours that's very prosperous. Don't feel guilty for the prosperity we have, but beware of the dangers of the prosperity we have. Be thankful for every blessing you have. Embrace them. They're gifts of God. But be very aware of the dangers that come with prosperity. The dangers that come of forgetting God, of forgetting the battle, of, as C.S. Lewis said, the world being at home in your soul. So that you're not aware of the call to action. That prayer is just, it's, it's a good thing. You see it, especially when there are prayer requests that come alongside. You're faithful to pray for them. We pray for other people. But how much do you pray for your own holiness? How much do you pray for God's work in your soul to make you more like Christ? To make you conform to his image? To remember the resource of his power and his person to combat the battle for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would make us aware. Aware of the reality of the spiritual battle that we are in. See, the truth is we may just not know it. or We may know it and go, ooh. I'm not aware of it. Help us to be more aware, but not to be afraid of it. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We have no need to be afraid of the devil's schemes. We have no need to be afraid because it is your resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that is at work toward us who believe. So, Lord, I pray for a greater awareness and a greater remembering of the resources that you've given. And the greatest resource is Jesus. Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, Jesus humiliated, Jesus ascended and exalted and reigning right now at your right hand so that as we pray and appropriate this power, We are calling down kingly power to conform us to the image of Christ. Oh, make us beautiful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.